and honor is yours. We pray all this in your most holy and precious name. Amen. So, why, why spend the next several weeks looking at the difficult words of Jesus? I mean, I read a lot of books, right? And I don't make sermon series out of all of them. I just don't. But this one in particular I felt was really important because especially coming out of the sermon series we just came out of, the um, ancient, ambiguous, diverse book that leads to wisdom, and we're talking about like what is scripture, I began to think about the words of Jesus. And, and a lot of times I think what happens is, is we come across these difficult things that, he, that Jesus says. And I think we do it to Paul as well to an extent. But we come across these difficult things and what we do is we try to domesticate them. And we try to say, well, what he, what, what he really meant was this. And I find it interesting that we do that because we don't necessarily do that in other parts of scripture. And, and here's what I've learned over, and maybe it's just me, and you all can just keep me in your prayers and think Jeff's a horrible person. Um, by the way, now nah, that's, okay. So um, <laughs> I was gonna say keep you in your prayers too because I've been your pastor now going on nine years. Um, so anyway, uh, thank you. <laughs> it amazes me that you're all still here. Um, so anyway, uh, I think what happens is if it's something that makes us uncomfortable, we domesticate it. And if it's something that we agree with or something that we find convicting of someone else, then we, well, that's, that's what the Bible says. Do you, do you know what I'm, do you see what I'm saying? Like, well, no, you can't change a word of the Bible. Uh, it's it's, every word is true, every word, ex and then, but then, and it's true, but you just don't understand because this one is too much about me. And so I'm going to, I'm going to kind of water this down a bit. And, and so I thought about that and I thought, well, you know, what, let's actually dive into the difficult words of Jesus. And the reason I bought the book is because I started wondering to myself, am I doing that? And I really wanted to learn more of a Jewish perspective on what Jesus was having to say. So, side note, this book is written by a Jewish person. And so I found that very enlightening too. So anyway, this, this, this story begins with, it's often called the rich young ruler. And I find that very interesting because that means that's how he's been known over the course of history. He's known as the rich young ruler. So, so think about this. If you, that's what he's known for. So often what you're known for is the thing that you want other people to know you as. Often. Because it's the thing that you present and the thing that you portray. And so right off the bat, what we see is it's good, there's a good chance that this is a young man who um, has somehow inherited, most likely, for him to be that young, an immense amount of wealth. And um, he, uh, he's Jewish. We know that about him. And he obviously thinks a lot of Jesus because he runs to Jesus. And then it says he drops down and he kneels before him. Well, it says he knelt. But, but as I picture the story, what I see is Jesus, it says Jesus is on his way. Uh, as Jesus started on his way to Jerusalem. So I picture him walking, Jesus in his, 
his uh, cohort walking down uh, the dusty road towards Jerusalem. And all of a sudden, this rich man comes running out. Now, think about this too. Running is not something that Jewish men did. Um, and he comes running out, and he gets in the middle of the road, and he stops and kneels right before Jesus. And so I believe that that image that we're given in this story shows that there's an earnestness of heart. He's not trying to trip Jesus up, like the story sometimes is told in other Gospels. In the Gospel of Mark, he, there is no attempt. His question is, it, it reveals his heart. Right? And so he comes up and he, and he addresses Jesus as good teacher. And Jesus questions the good. And that would be another sermon. I don't want to get too much into that because we've only got so much time. But he, he addresses him as good teacher. The reason he calls him teacher is because he believes that Jesus is going to have the answer to this question. That is just this burning question that he has. And and I stop right there, and I ask myself this. If I had the opportunity to, to get in front of Jesus and ask Jesus one question, what would that question be? Have you ever thought about that as you read the story? Like, if that was you, what's, what's the one question that seems to gnaw at you? That, man, I just wish, I wish I could get in front of Jesus and ask him this question. Now, I've had the benefit of thinking about that for a while. And so I've thought about that. What is my question? I think my question is this. I would, I would want to get in front of Jesus, and I want to be like, I'd probably mess up too and say, good teacher, and then he'd reprimand me. But I'd be like, Jesus, am I doing this right? That's my question. Am I, am I doing this right? Am I, am I following you the way you want me to follow you? Am I doing it right? Am I being the husband that you want me to be? Am I being the father that you want me to be? Am I being the friend that you want me to be? Am I, am I welcoming strangers the way you want me to? Am I, am I doing it right? And this man's question is this. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, if you look at the other questions that people ask Jesus in this gospel, and we're sticking with the gospel of Mark. If you look at the other questions that people in the gospel of Mark ask Jesus, this question is by far the most selfish and perhaps morbid question in the Gospel of Mark. Because this man's not interested in being rescued from demons, as other requests made of Jesus are. Um, he, he's, not, he's not interested in saving a young child on the brink of death, as others that stop Jesus and ask a question are. Instead, the image that we get here is that he's rich, he's healthy, I mean, he ran, he's self-confident, 
He doesn't care what other people think about him. Again, he ran. So he's rich, he's healthy, and he's self-confident. He has wealth, and now, on top of his wealth, he wants to inherit even more. And so Jesus proceeds to answer the question by reciting the second part of the Ten Commandments. And so I, I, I was like, you know, I'm curious. Is he doing it in order? I don't know why. Like, right? Do you remember as a kid you had to memorize? Did, okay, did, you have to, did anybody else have to memorize the Ten Commandments as a kid? I did if I wanted to be confirmed in the United Methodist Church. And, I, and when I did, and I was able to do it with my Sunday school teacher, like stand in front of her and do it, I even got a gold star on my chart. Right. Do you remember those charts? Come on, people. All right. So I was like, Does Je- did Jesus do it in order? Does he get the gold star? All right. So, so I went back and I said, okay, so if we look at Exodus chapter 20, uh, it's the second half, right? He doesn't go through all Ten Commandments. He just does the second half. And he says, you must not murder. All right, so I go over here. Hold on, I got to... All right, so... This is important, by the way. All right, so... Uh, what does he say first? You must not murder. All right, excellent. You must not commit adultery. You must not commit adultery. All right, you must not steal... Uh, you must not steal. You must not testify falsely. You must not testify falsely against your neighbor. All right, so, but he got it. I will give him credit. All right. (laughs) And then there's verse 17, which is about coveting, right? And he says, you must not covet your neighbor's house. You must not covet your neighbor's wife, male or female servant, ox or donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. In other words, uh, don't covet, Don't covet. All right, so what does Jesus say? Um, You must not cheat anyone. Well, that's that's different. And then, that was the last one, according to the the original 10 here in Exodus. And Jesus adds another one, which says, uh, right here, honor your father and mother. Okay. So what's he doing? I don't think he messed up. By placing, okay, so first of all, let's look at this, right? By placing um, love of parents at the end of the list rather than at the beginning where it actually does go, after, right after God, then his parents. Um, in case, I see, I, I remember my gold star. Um, so by, by placing parents at the end of the list rather than at the beginning, um, what he's doing is he, he appears to be s- like setting forward the entire Torah for the people, for this person. He's saying, you know the Torah. You know the Torah. Um, the other thing that's very interesting thing here too is he changes the word from the covet in Exodus, the way that they it would have been known to them. And he switches it over to this idea of cheat. I'm not thrilled with the idea of cheat. I like the term defraud better. It means the same thing. But defraud, uh, in fact, some of the versions that you probably read use the word defraud. 
Defraud is a very interesting thing. Because the other thing that he's doing is not only is he pushing the guys, I, like, okay, remember the Torah, young man. Remember the Torah. You know what to do. You have Torah. You know what to do. And then he switches this thing. And I'm sure, I'm, I'm sure the guy caught it. When he, because it, it's not don't covet, but don't defraud. What he's doing is he's connecting the, the concept of defraud, where defraud shows up throughout the, the Torah, the prophets, and, and wisdom literature, is the idea of somehow the rich defrauding or exploiting the labor of the poor. That's the essence of defraud in Torah. And so he's looking at this rich young man and says, don't defraud the poor. Oh, that's setting up, isn't it, for what he's going to say next? Don't cheat the poor out of what you owe the poor. So the question then becomes again, how did this man get his money? Does Jesus know? How did this man get his money? Is the man even aware of how he got his money and how privileged he is to have that? And again, then as I start reading this, and I start thinking about myself, because remember the question is, am I trying to domesticate what Jesus says, or am I trying to take it seriously? The question that I have to ask myself is, where does my privilege come from? Can I even see it? Did the rich young man think he earned everything he had, and he just wanted to earn one more thing? Do I think I've earned everything I have and I can just continue to earn more? Are we aware of where our privilege comes from? So he adds this other thing too, right? To wrap it up and to bring it back around. Honor your parents and your mother. Uh, your parents and your mother. They're both parents. Honor your parents. <laughs> Honor your parents, Right? Um, I think honoring your parents has, is, is a lot more to, than just supporting them as they grow older. Would you agree with me on that? I do think that to a certain extent, taking care of your parents as they get older is part of honoring them. I, I remember, um, I remember uh, when my father-in-law passed away, I remember having a conversation with Nancy, my mother-in-law, and I was talking about how I will always be there. And she goes, I'm not your responsibility. She said that to me. And I said, oh, well, according to the Bible, you are. <laughs> so get over it. Um, <laughs> right? And so, but it's, but it's more than that, right? Because I think that, Think about this. Again, the man's Jewish. So from the moment he was born, his parents would have been teaching him about Torah, which is why Jesus says, you know what to do. You know Torah. He's going back and he's saying, you've been taught Torah since you were little, little, little. Right? There's a whole thing in there in Deuteronomy that says that you should raise them up and that you should teach them and you should tell them that hero Israel, the Lord, the Lord your God is one. In the morning when they wake up and at night when they lay down and when you go to have a meal together and you should be teaching them. And, and so to honor your parents, you should know what to do and then you should be known for doing it. 
He should have been known for his good works, especially for care for the poor, and not for his wealth. But we already talked about what is he known for throughout history as being the rich young ruler, not the generous young ruler, not the compassionate, caring young ruler, the rich young ruler. What do I want to be known for? And the man looks at him and says, I've kept all these since my youth. And there's no reason to doubt him. Again, I think his heart is, is earnest. He's, he's like being serious. I, I want this. I do believe this. And I have. I've done everything I can. And I've kept these. I've kept these since my youth. And I, and I think that we all, like him, want to be thought of as being good people. But keeping the commandments is not quite the same thing as living the commandments. He may have done all that was nominally expected of him, but he did not think beyond himself. Torah is, by definition, necessarily relational. To love the neighbor and to love the stranger requires actual neighbors and strangers. We can't shelter ourselves. He couldn't shelter himself and said, well, of course I've loved all my neighbors and strangers. I've just never met any. Don't miss this, verse 21. Jesus loves this man. In fact, in the Gospel of Mark... It's the only time specifically that the author mentions Jesus' love for an individual. It's this guy. And how astounding that the one person Jesus explicitly loves is the earnest young man who will turn out to be, at least within this narrative, a failed disciple. Makes me feel a little better. Right? Because failure to give wholeheartedly does not make one less worthy of Christ's love. Doesn't let you off the hook either. <laughs> so Jesus looks at him, diagnoses the problem, and then he realizes what is missing in this man's life. Right? He says, you lack one thing. He says, right? he says you lack one thing. So Jesus knows that the human heart has multiple needs, and that this, the gospel is not one-size-fits-all model, right? There's something that Joe needs, which is different than something that John needs, which is something different, right, than what any of us need. It doesn't mean that Jesus just has one answer. It's just Jesus has one answer for this guy, and an answer for you, and an answer for you, and an answer for you. So the man believes that he lacks something. And I read that, and I'm like, could you imagine, like if, uh, if there was a really, like if there was a beggar overhearing this guy? Like, you, wait a second, you think you lack something? That's the human condition. He lacks something, and, and he feels like he lacks something. And so Jesus says, well, the thing that you think you're lacking, the thing that you think you're lacking 
right? There's, there's still something that he, he needs or that he wants, this man. There's, there's still a need, a want in his life. But Jesus shows him that his real issue is actually his abundance, not his lack. The real problem you're having is your abundance, not your lack. In reality, what he lacks is knowledge of his abundance. <laughs> he, he, he lacks awareness of his lack of lack. <laughs> and I think this for a moment, I think that that is actually the issue that the gospel addresses with each and every one of us is there something in our lives that we feel like we lack? And what Jesus is trying to address is that you lack the awareness of that you don't lack. You've been given everything that you could possibly need. The question that Jesus is asking him and the question that I ask myself is this, do I feel like I constantly need more? So he says, sell all you have. And I got to say this, this cannot be an address for everyone. This is not like a sweeping, so everyone sell everything you own, right? Um, and Jesus doesn't tell everyone to engage in this type of divesting. He, he doesn't tell Mary and Martha to sell their house. No, he goes and he experiences hospitality at their home. It's what are you doing with what you've got, Right? Because to just tell everyone to sell everything that they own, that might actually be immoral and insufficiently attentive to people's needs. But money can become a God. And at the same time, money can be used for good. Again, right, we look at Mary and Martha. Jesus doesn't tell Martha to sell her home. In fact, he receives hospitality there. What, what's happening is Martha is practicing ministry. And in this house, Jesus continues to teach. So the point is this, right? As Jesus kind of goes into the end, and, and, or the, the storyteller does anyway, 29 through 31, the point is that it, the point is not to earn salvation or to earn divine attention. According to Jesus, we're judged by what we do rather than by the status that we inherit. God is going to make the final judgment, not us. Our job is to live by what God wants. And a good starting point is love of God and love of neighbor. It's a great place for us to start. So at the end of the story, at the end of the story, we lose sight of the disciple, right? I, I just love the, the imagery of it. His, you could picture it, right? It says that his face, like, I, again, I picture him. He's in the dust and he's kneeling before Jesus and he's like, what do I need to do to inherit? And he's like, you know, you just, you, you, you've, you've been taught Torah from an early age. Do these things. And, and then he does that little switch on him. And he's like, wait a second, where are we going with this? And he says, so just go. All you got to do is go sell everything you own and give it to the poor. And it says the man's face dropped. 
So I picture him smiling like, I f- okay, Jesus is finally here. I can finally answer, ask him. And he gives him the answer and he's like, Ugh. And the story ends with him walking away. But I wonder if that actually is the end of his part of the story. Because later on, in chapter 14, we're going to meet an unnamed disciple with Jesus in Gethsemane. Now, there are multiple speculations of who this man is and why he's there. Right? We're told that it's this, there's this man and as they try to capture him, all he has on is a, is a linen shirt. And as they grab him, he tears out of his linen shirt and runs away naked. And some people speculate that that's the way that Mark is putting himself into the story. But it's just speculation. So I feel like I'm also allowed to speculate. What if it's this guy? What if Mark put this guy back in the story one last time? I mean, after all, it is the one that Jesus loves. Right? And maybe it's our questioner who at this point has sold everything he had. And all he has left is that linen shirt. And he's following Jesus. He gave everything he had to the poor. And this is his last attempt to be with Jesus. And we see at the very end, he has nothing. We can imagine his fate. We can spend time imagining his fate. And in doing so, maybe we can even imagine our own. Amen.